This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. I'm Ronnie. It's good to be with you. I got back from Cuba. That was wild and awesome. Doing theological training there, but I'm really glad to be back with you now. So we are in a new sermon series called Meeting Jesus. And what we're doing is we're taking a few texts to see what happens when a person recognizes Jesus for who he truly is. So this morning, we're going to look at the story about the centurion soldier and his first meeting with Jesus. Now, this story that we're going to study here in a second is in both Matthew and Luke, but we're going to study the Luke account, and it's because there's this unique feature in, uh, in, this, in Luke's te- version that I want you to know about. And this is really, really cool Bible literary stuff. See, in chapter 7, you're going to find two stories. The, the first is the centurion, which we're about to study here in a second. And right afterwards is the famous story of the widow from Nain who lost her son and he was resurrected. Now, we're only going to study the centurion, but I wanted you to know up front that they, these stories belong together because I'm going to reference it a little bit later. Now, right after these two stories are told, Luke, who's the author, he tells us the crowd's reaction to these events. They say in verse 16, and we'll read it, that God has visited his people. So this line in verse 16 is what theologians call a divine comment. It's, a, it's this interpretive way of understanding what the people thought about Jesus. Jesus visiting us is tantamount to God visiting us, all right? Now, before we get to the text, I, I want to take a second to um, think about what it means for God to visit his people. Because if we, don't understand the, if we don't understand that, we won't understand the real beauty of this story. And, and let me illustrate what I mean. When, uh, when my son Micah was just a little buddy, like two years old, not unlike other children, his favorite toys were balls. And, and it didn't matter what kind of ball, right? It, it could be a football. That was a football. Or it could be a football which is a baseball. You have to be a dad to interpret this, right? It's a skill we have. And, and there's this, certain, this splendid delight that comes over my boy's face when he played with footballs and baseballs. So it's no surprise then that he would spot a certain ball on my bookshelf. And this was no ordinary ball. See, when I graduated from the Air Force Academy in 2000, the, the, the owner of the Astros back then was a guy named Drayton McLean. He, uh, and he displayed on the huge jumbotron at what then was called Enron Park. That's kind of funny now. It's Minute Maid Park. That's what it was called then. And uh, it said, congratulations, Second Lieutenant Ronnie Garcia. And he followed it up by sending me two tickets to the game and a baseball signed by none other than Jeff Bagwell. Jeff Bagwell. Former Rookie of the Year, right? 1994 National League MVP, four-time All-Star, Hall of Famer. Perhaps the best first baseman in the 90s. And that signed baseball, like a visit from Jeff Bagwell himself, sits on my shelf. But when my boy looks at that ball, he wants it. 
but he can only appreciate it to a limited degree, right? No doubt he would enjoy the ball and delight in it as he recklessly throws it around the yard. But if he were to hold the ball, if I were to let him do, do that, quite frankly, this two-year-old would have no idea of the full significance, the full magnitude of the very thing at his fingertips. Well, listen, I don't want us to miss the very thing at our, uh, at our fingertips. I don't want us to miss the magnitude of God's visit. Like Micah missing it, We've got to lock into what this all means. So don't get me wrong. We certainly love and cherish the idea that God became man in Jesus Christ, that he died on a cross for us. But what I'm trying to suggest is in the story, we are going to discover an even deeper significance. And, 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 and the centurion is super dialed into this. The centurion wanted Jesus to visit his servant because he knows it was God visiting his servant. And that's what makes this meeting so special. So as we consider the visitation of God, there are three implications that I want us to see in the centurion's encounter and meeting with Jesus. One, that it gives confidence. Two, it demands faith. And three, it pushes boundaries. So confidence, faith, boundaries. That's going to be our outline for our study this morning. Would you, in reverence to God's word, do you stand with me? And let's read Luke chapter 7. Verse 1, and I'll begin. And after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. For when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed." For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now follow me, the response in verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but not God's word. It abides forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. All right, so let's just let's start right from the top. Because God has visited his people, it gives confidence. It gives confidence in the authority of Jesus' power. Now, what in this passage earns our confidence of this power? Now, the first thing to notice in this meeting is the centurion's analogy of Jesus' power. Now, that sounds a little bit complicated, so let me tell you what I mean. It seems clear from this text that the centurion heard and believed that Jesus was no ordinary itinerant 
preacher. In fact, the centurion's own words lead us to believe that he was acutely aware of Jesus' power. Like, like Jesus is something crazy different, right? Listen to what he says there in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He looks at Jesus, the centurion looks at Jesus and says, Listen, I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, I want you to notice that the centurion says, I too, I also am a man set under authority. Who's he comparing himself to? It's Jesus, right? Right, I don't, I wouldn't look at Amanda and say, hey, baby, I too like ping sandwiches. You know why? Because she don't care about golf. There's no, there's nothing reciprocal there. Now, if I could say that to Mark Taylor, it would totally work, right? So what I'm trying to say is there's this implicit shared comparison. So the centurion says, I too know something about authority. Now, what you've got to understand is that when the centurion commands something, there's no debate. You kind of need to know something about Roman military practice. Men were put to death for less than obeying a direct order, right? So authority in the Roman army is something serious. It's serious stuff. And so when the centurion provides this analogy, it makes really good sense. And my own experience kind of bears this out, right? I was in the military for five years, and when I was with my commander, on occasion, he would make very unreasonable requests, like giving me a three-hour project on a Friday night at 6 p.m. But never once... Did I dare entertain the idea of debating with him, right? Could you imagine? You know, boss, I'm sorry I don't feel like playing G.I. Joe today, right? Like, no, that would never happen. When the commander spoke, you better believe it was good as done. So when the centurion spoke these words to Jesus, what he's doing is acknowledging by way of analogy that Jesus had that kind of power. And here's the kicker, though. Jesus' power is even more spectacular. This isn't just authority over mere soldiers. Jesus could command anything, right? Even the forces of sickness and death. And so we see this with the centurion's servant, right? Jesus had a kind of power unknown to all humanity, even power over sickness and death. Verse 10, look there at verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, what? They found the servant well. Jesus didn't have to be there. Jesus didn't have to lay his hands on the servant, right? He need only speak a word. And as as we find, the servant was healed. The power of sickness and death does not have authority like Jesus has. Now, at the very end of the following story, remember there's these two stories together, a widow's son, Luke presents to us the response to the crowd who is seeing this, right? They have front row seats, and it says, fear, look there, verse 16, fear seized them all, and they glorified God. Now, that is the right response. In other words, however bad the sickness is, the thing to fear, it's not the cancer, Right? It's not the sickness. It's God. Our fears have to be in the right order. There's something to be feared here, but it's God. Now, none of us were present for those two particular miracles. But I know, right, we can all point to something in our life where we had front row seats 
to, to, to God's miraculous and providential work. I'm sure we could all talk about a time where we stood breathless at God's goodness and faithfulness to us when we asked. But you know what the problem with amazement is? Is it doesn't last. See, the amazement in the story isn't the end goal. The awesome fear that we experience is meant to translate into certainty and assurance so that when we're going through the less magnificent parts of our life, we still sit at awe at the feet of Jesus. See, the only one here in the story who got a miracle that day was the centurion's servant. I'm sure there were tons of people in the audience, in the crowd, who didn't get their miracles, right? But they got, what I'm suggesting, something better. They got a holy fear in Christ. They got confidence in Christ's power, even if they didn't get a miracle to order, you see. I know there have been times in your life where you have pleaded with God to heal a sick parent or a spouse or a child, and the answer was no. No, those times are not easy, but our faith perseveres. How? So the Lord gives us so much assurance and certainty in his mighty power that we can stand amazed, even marveling at God, whether in sickness or in health. See? Because there's none like Jesus. None like him. All right. So, so far we've seen the centurion meet Jesus He knows that this is a visitation from God himself. And not only does it give him and us confidence in Jesus' power, but it also demands a response of faith. Now, this is our second point. It demands a response of faith. Now, when we talk about faith, right, if we're honest, it's it's kind of a, a nebulous, difficult thing to kind of describe. Can we have real talk here? Can we have real talk? Right? Faith is complex. All right? It's complex. And uh, it's difficult to iron out exactly even how to define faith. Right? You'll see in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And, and that's beautiful, but that's more like of a confession. It's not so much a definition. Right? And, and we all have this internal difficulty defining and even measuring faith. Especially when you start, I don't know, talking about things that are really close to home. Like that child that maybe received Christ when they were in high school. And then they go off to college and completely disinterested, right? Or that brother or sister or close friend that you prayed with for years. For some reason just doesn't want to go to church. In fact, makes really sophisticated arguments about why church is unnecessary for a vibrant relationship with Jesus or something like that. Right? Y'all know, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? People we love. And really, the issue isn't about faith. Or at least not the way that we think about it. Like, for instance, in Hollywood or professional sports, you hear celebrities and athletes saying, hey, we just got to have faith. Right? There are even these really trendy shirts worn by agnostics that say... Keep the faith, right? And you know why? Because everyone has faith. Even the atheist has faith that there is no God, even though the scientific method can't help them with that, right? Everyone has faith. So the question, or our interest, is actually more specific. It is, 
What is God-honoring faith consist of? Not just faith, but what does God-honoring faith consist of? And this is where Luke 7 is extremely helpful. So there's two aspects of God-honoring faith presented in this passage, and it's humility and a dependent request. Uh, Let's examine how God-honoring faith is just dripping with humility first. Luke tells us that this man is a centurion in the Roman government, And this is a man who obviously has great authority and power. His position gave him command of a hundred Roman soldiers, which was also accompanied with quite a paycheck. And because the Roman government esteemed centurions, he was then a man of great local influence. But perhaps the centurion was even more esteemed than others because he had exercised his sort of civic duties in a way that received a a whole lot of attention, right? I mean, the story tells us that he was instrumental in having a local synagogue built. Even the local Jewish leaders liked him and lobbied for this man, which is quite remarkable considering that Jews viewed the Roman Empire as the oppressors, right? This, This is like a modern day equivalent would be like, the Palestinian leaders totally vouching for Ben Netanyahu. I mean, it's like crazy stuff going on here, right? Now, take all of that information, right, that context, and let's examine it against the, ver- uh, against the backdrop of verses 6 and 7. Look there. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. Now, when I hear the centurion's words, I'm thinking, what? What are you talking about, Mr. Centurion? Not worthy? The Jewish elders think you're worthy. Your government thinks you're worthy. Your social influence certainly suggests that you are worthy. Can you hear then how striking this, these man's words are? I'm not worthy. You see that contrast there? You see that kind of humble recognition? See, listen, Jesus was an itinerant teacher with nothing more than what he had on his person. He never studied in a famous institution. He never traveled further than 50 miles from the place where he was born. Jesus did did not embody any of the things that we typically associate with greatness. And nevertheless, this centurion recognized the real magnitude of Jesus and his words confirmed it. See, there's no doubt that the author Luke intends for us to marvel alongside of even Jesus at the humility of the centurion. Now, dripping humility is only one part of God-honoring faith. Consider also the centurion's dependent request. So I mentioned the this, this centurion's a man of great means. He had connections, resources, money. He had money at his dispense. But then when crisis struck, there's no question how he would respond. Look there at verse 2 and 3. The centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent, sent him to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. One would think that this centurion would at least try 
to help the servant by exhausting all of the means available to him. I mean, surely he knows a doctor. Surely he knows like a Roman priest that could kind of give him some kind of elixir. I mean, surely he can buy the best medicine available. But all indications are that this soldier did none of those things. He did something greater. He placed himself at the mercy of Jesus. Verse 7, Lord, say the word. Just say the word and my servant would be healed. See, this man knew he had no recourse but only to rely on the mercy of Jesus. And so this kind of dripping humility coupled with this dependent request is indeed the the bare essence and makeup of God-honoring faith. Not just faith, but God-honoring faith. And this passage gives us an exemplar of faith in the centurion. Oh, none of us here are centurions, but we are, we are a people of varying degrees of authority, right? If, if you're a daddy or a mommy or an older sibling, a banker, a serviceman, CEO, a bus driver, whatever, we all possess some kind of authority, whether it's explicit or implicit. But here's what you need to know, and listen carefully because you can count on what I'm about to say. Even a person with great authority will one day be at the bedside of a loved one just like this centurion. You see, not even his social standing could keep his servant from dying. He couldn't and we can't cash in our authority. It is useless in those times. And so you too might find yourself at the bedside of a dear friend, of a parent, or God forbid, a child. And faith says, it's not so important that you remember your own authority, but that you remember Jesus' authority. See, these are the moments where we're kind of laid bare and we remember that we've got nothing except Jesus. And in those moments, we remember That God doesn't, he doesn't owe us anything, right? He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us a miracle. But we can and must humbly subject ourselves to his tender mercy, trusting in faith in Jesus' power over sickness and death. When the centurion met Jesus, he knew that a visit from Jesus was a visit from God. And this gave him confidence. But it also demanded faith. Faith that is humble and faith that is dependent. Listen, faith in Christ is never an academic exercise. Faith is not, okay, God, I cognitively agree with those few points that my pastor said I need to agree with, right? That's not what it is. It is, God, my very life, everything that matters to me is in your hands. You see that? It's different, right? I'm saying something different. Let's consider one last implication of God's visitation. So we said that it gives confidence and it requires and demands faith, but it does one more thing. It actually pushes new boundaries. So what boundaries? How are these boundaries affirmed? What am I even talking about? All right, this is going to get a touch theological, so everyone put on your thinking caps. It's going to be a lot of fun, all right? 
let's lock it in here. So first, we got to notice Jesus' response to Gentile faith. I didn't say gentle faith, Gentile faith. See, in this story, we see a centurion who loves his servant, hears about Jesus, sends a delegation, shows remarkable faith in Jesus, and Jesus responds like this. Because of your faith, Mr. Centurion, I will heal your servant. Is that what happens? That's not what happens. What does he do? Jesus kind of throws this kind of curveball, doesn't he? He steps back, looks around and says, verse 9, I tell you what, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, right? Now, why did Jesus have to bring the Jews into this, you know? This response seems really kind of quirky and kind of out of place unless we're supposed to learn something more from this story. It would be really fascinating for us to evaluate this passage, chapter 7, in terms of Luke chapter 4. But since my time is not endless, let me quickly give you the cliff's notes of Luke chapter 4 because it's super pertinent. All right? So Luke chapter 4 picks up with Jesus entering a synagogue on the Sabbath. It's what he did every Sabbath, all right? And the text tells us that he picks up the scroll of Isaiah. He begins reading chapter 61. It's a famous messianic passage concluding by saying that he is going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he reads it aloud. He sits down, kind of crosses his legs and says, Today, the scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. And so the people start asking questions. They're like, isn't this Joseph's son? And so he says, yeah, the prophet's never welcomed in his own hometown. But then what he does is he gives these two illustrations from the Old Testament of how chapter 61 is already fulfilled. This is crazy. Check this out. So Jesus cites in the synagogue the sort of post-lude sermonette that he's giving. He tells the story of Elijah, a Jew, healing a Gentile widow's son. And then he tells the story of Elisha, a Jew, healing Naaman, which was our Old Testament reading today, a military guy, the commander of the pagan army. Now, at this, people start going nuts. I mean, they're irate. They, the text tells us they want to throw Jesus off of a cliff. And do you know why that everyone is so stinking angry? Because those two stories are about miraculous healings of Gentiles. Why is the Jewish Messiah saying and doing such nice things for Gentiles? See, the Messiah is supposed to be a military commander who rescues Israel from exile and protects them from the oppression of the Gentiles from Rome. And what's interesting is that in our story here in Luke 7 and in the following story about the widow's son, they are remarkably similar, literarily speaking, to the two stories that Jesus tells in sites of the Old Testament in Luke chapter 4, right? Right? You got the Elijah and the widow's son, and then you have the widow's son, the widow from Nain, right? And then you have the Syrian soldier, Naaman, and then you have the centurion. So Luke, the author, is saying, and don't miss this, don't miss this, the Messiah, by a matter of who Jesus is healing, is busting open the former boundaries of God's covenant people. Well, listen, in former times, God's people were identified by their Jewish ethnicity or their relationship to Israel. But Jesus is changing all of that up. See, in the Bible, listen, y'all, in the Bible, a healing miracle is not just a neat magic trick. 
It's not, that's not what's going on here. See, we actually have evidence from these documents from Qumran. Okay, y'all don't know anything about Qumran. It's super awesome. I'm going to do Bible study with you another day. But what, what, but what it suggests is that what we learn is that in certain Jewish circles, a maimed Jew could not be a full member of the covenant community. In other words, if you're blind or if you're lame or if you're deaf or if you're dumb, you were unable to be a full Israelite. And so the effect of these cures, these miracles, was not just bringing physical healing. It was reconstituting the healed as a member of Israel. Can can y'all see where I'm going with this now, right? So when you read this passage from Luke's gospel, knowing what I just told you, the reader is confronted with the truth that Jesus, by virtue of his healings, is reconstituting people into God's covenant people, the very ones that most people believe do not belong. Jesus is calling for deep and shocking disloyalty to those parameters that formerly defined God's family. And he's replacing those former markers with total and uncompromising faith in himself. Right? The centurion's faith was so mind-boggling that Jesus stopped, he turned to the crowd, and he utters those deep, subversive words about a Gentile. And he says, not even in Israel... Have I seen such incredible faith? Jesus, in essence, is changing everything. If you want to be a part of God's covenant people, your ethnic background doesn't matter. Your citizenship is now found through unrelenting faith in Jesus. Now, even as I recount this event, I don't know, Maybe this is just interesting to you. Maybe it's not that impactful. But here's what you've got to understand. Although the Jews and Gentiles had working relationships as a whole, the Jewish community saw themselves as being in exile. They were waiting any day for their Messiah to come as a military commander and then to restore the nation from this reprehensible people, from the Roman government. But Jesus had another idea. Jesus instead pursued these reprehensible, disgusting, immoral, unclean oppressors. And he offered them inclusion into God's covenant people. What Jesus models for us here has direct implication into our worldview today. Listen. Some of you are people who, um, who are, our kids are coming in a little early. I don't know what's going on, but hey, they're welcome here. All right. Some of you um, perceive yourself as being the right kind of person, okay? Right? You, you perceive yourself as being the right kind of person, and, and you want other people who look like you, who act like you, who vote like you to be in the church, Right? There's, there's some of you. But then there's this other group of people who you know your problems, right? You know your baggage. And you think to yourself, I'm not the right kind of person, right? I don't want to go to church. I would just be faking it anyway. I'd just be faking it. I don't want to go to church. Here's what I want you to know. Both of those responses are totally unacceptable to Jesus. Totally unacceptable. Totally unacceptable. 
this story demands that we have a shocking disloyalty to churchy cultural indicators of the right and wrong kind of people for church. Right? Everyone's the wrong kind of person. And therefore, everyone's the right kind of person. Where else can sick people go except for a hospital? Right? The church is supposed to be a hospital for the spiritually sick. And Jesus is then the healer of us all. Pushing the boundaries is what Jesus is up to of who you think belongs in the covenant community. All right. What have you heard me say? When you heard that I was preaching on this very familiar text that you've probably read a thousand times, you didn't know it would be sticking its proverbial finger in your eye, did you? Uh, I just didn't see it coming for sure. But Luke's agenda is clear. He's like, consider how the power of Jesus is unambiguous and moves us to certainty. Because who, who can do what he does, right? Consider how if this power is true, is it responding in true faith like the centurion, like our only recourse? And lastly, how has Jesus symbolically redefined God's covenant community within this new paradigm where uncompromising faith is what gives you, not, not your resume, but your faith is what gives you citizenship, all right? Let me just get real honest here, and maybe you can relate to my struggle. When I think about God's power in reality, I'm, I'm meh. I'm often unimpressed, I guess, mostly just distracted. When I think of needing to marvelously uh, I, I needing a marvelously humble faith like the centurion, you know what I feel? Self-addicted, self-consumed. When I think of my churchianity and how I have failed to love messy people, you know what I feel? Numb. <laughs> Numb. Truth be told, I can't even properly love my wife, much less my lost neighbor. So what's, what are we learning here, y'all? Like, what are we learning? Think about this. I'll end right here. The centurion said to Jesus, my Lord, just say the word, my Lord, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Listen, Jesus has visited his people. And right now, this same Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and Hebrews tells us that he lives ever to intercede for you. And do you know what that means? He's saying the word, the word of healing and transformation so that you can change, so that I can change, so that your heart can expand, so that you can feel growth where there was death and numbness. Jesus is saying the word right now. For you. You believe that? Oh, Trinity Church, pray that reality, that truth, deep into your heart. See what happens. Pray that truth deep in your heart and see what happens. Amen. Amen.